0: 1 of chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. Thank you for that good psalm. Mike singing and Maggie at the piano, thank you very much for that. Romans chapter 7, I do again hope you'll be back with us for the evening service at 6 o'clock this evening. Hope you can arrange your schedule to do so. I believe the Kisslings will be a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 7, verse 1, Paul writes, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members, to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What this passage of Scripture is important to understand to begin with, as it is in all of Paul's writings in Romans, is this passage of Scripture is dealing with people who believed and held to the fact that the law, keeping of the law, was a way, a means to be accepted with God. That's still very much a predominant kind of teaching in our present society. You can turn on a radio or television, and there's these statements that preachers make all over the place that you have to be a good person to go to heaven. Let me tell you something. Nothing could be further from the truth. Heaven is not a place for good people. Heaven is a place for saved people. And the difference in that is, and obviously saved people ought to be good people after they get saved, but being good is not what gets them there. What gets people there is a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul is going to talk about in this passage of Scripture. And what he's going to talk about is he's going to talk to those people especially who are trying very hard to be good people, and they're trying to do so by keeping a set of laws. A code of ethics, if you would, a code of standard, a a kind of law that says, look, do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. And if you keep these laws, you get to go to heaven. That's what the teachings of a lot of churches are, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And after all, it doesn't matter what you think, what I think, or anybody else thinks, it does matter what God says. And in this passage of Scripture, Paul addresses this important issue. And here's how he addresses it. And let me begin with this kind of approach. America, for instance, wants to write her own moral code. And she's made many attempts at it. And she continues, by the way, to this very moment to do so. What's interesting to me is the human race, which obviously includes America, is under obligation and under dominion of the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God. And that's God, Jehovah, who created the universe and everything that in it is. One of the laws that God has written down and in His Word and made very clear is that which is found in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 7. It goes, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And that's an absolute law. Can't violate it. It's like jumping off of the church building. You get on top of this building and you jump off. There is a law that takes effect. It's a law of gravity. And you're going to hit the ground, but hard. Um, By the way, if you don't believe that, ask John Macbeth. John came down off this building. You recall when it was being built, uh, I think on a ladder. I think he was carrying shingles up, and the ladder collapsed. And John came all the way down to the ground. And John's still in good shape today, and he's still a member of the church, which speaks well of us pain and agony that you invest in this place. But anyway, the point is this, the fact of people thinking that they can somehow do certain things that run contrary to what God says and then walk away from it without a scratch is absolutely amazing to me. I can tell you this, with the current attacks against God and His law that you see all around us in our society, the human race is in for a bumper crop of a harvest. And you can be assured of this. It'll be one crop that people will have wished had failed. Because you cannot endorse or encourage or condone homosexuality in our society, which is contrary to God's law and to nature's law, and think that down the road somewhere there will be no consequences to it. God has spoken on this issue. You cannot tamper ...with the definition of marriage, of one man and one woman for life... ...and think that nothing will come of it. You can't do that. We can already see the argument of the homosexual community... ...that the failure of people, men and women... ...to stay together in a marriage relationship... ...has given credibility to their cries... ...to let them have a shot at it. You see, if the divorce rate had not been so great in America that argument that the homosexual community put forth would not have any credibility to it. But because good people, heterosexual people, haven't done a good job of keeping up with what God said, failing to obey what God said... Then it gives the homosexual community a leg up to say, hey, you folks have tried it. You, tried, you You did it, what you said the Bible says, and you're not staying together. So why pick on us and say we can't do it? I think we ought to have a shot at it. And this society in which we live, which is always open-minded and always tolerant of any idea, will say, sure, I think you ought to have a shot. Our only problem is it's not against the rest of us so much that this is such a bad violation, though it is. The violation is against God's law, God's word, God's character. When he created man, he did not create them, Adam and Steve. He created them, Adam and Eve. And he said, this is precedent for all that's to follow. A man and a woman will be joined together in a relationship that will last as long as they live. The fact of the matter is, God did not give a plan B in case this didn't work out. He says this is the way it is and this is the way it stands and this is the way it will always be. Now you can listen and you can understand this when you come back as we did in Romans chapter 1 and saw that those people who came into and had this kind of relationship, uh, even the Bible says that even nature itself teaches that this is not right. Even nature says it's not right. So the next time you hear somebody talking about on a, on a National Geographic or on a Discovery Channel or a TLC channel or some of these others and say, well, even in the animal kingdom, homosexuality is a prescribed a way of life. You can laugh your lungs out because that's not true. The Bible says even nature teaches this is not good. This is not right. Does that mean it never happens? Certainly it doesn't. The Bible says that murder is wrong. Has anybody ever been killed? Absolutely. It simply means they violated God's Word. Maybe you did, maybe you did not. See on King, what's his name? Uh, Larry King. One night when John MacArthur was on there, and he was on there with a young man who was a homosexual. He was interviewing and Larry King was talking to John MacArthur, and then he was talking to this, this homosexual boy. And he, and he would say, why, why John? Uh, Larry King would say, why, John, do you think it's so wrong for this young man to be in this relationship? And he began to, John MacArthur didn't argue with the boy, the fact that he was a nice boy and kind and great. He didn't argue that point. He pointed out the fact that there's one simple truth about it. It violates what God said, Period. You cannot run amok against what God says and expect good to come of it. It just won't work. That's why we have the mess in our marriages. That's why we have the mess with growing and rearing our children. We simply do not do what God says. So when it comes to this chapter, Paul the Apostle says, Look, for you folks who think that it's this law that's the secret, I want to explain something to you. It's not the law that's the secret. It's the relationship of the lawgiver. And that's what he's going to tell you in this chapter. Look at verse number 1. And we covered this already last week. So let me just give you what we said then. In verse 1, Know ye not, or know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, that is, people who knew what was right and wrong, and and they knew the law of God as it was given by Moses. He says, how that... Now look, this is the... Verse 1, this is a declaration of the truth. And that is this. Here's the truth. The law hath dominion over a man... So long as he liveth. That means the moment you die, I don't care how much money you owe. It does not matter how many deeds you've done, how many crime you've committed. The moment you die, you're free from all of them. Now, in a case with debt, you may have family who will have to pick up and pay the bills. But the fact is, all the criminal acts you've ever committed, the moment you die, you're free from. One reason, because you're free from law this is a this is a general principle it's a declared truth in verse number 2 and 3 he doesn't declare that truth again he illustrates it verse 2 he says for a woman for instance hath a husband She's bound by law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law so that she is no adulteress, even though she be married to another. So Paul illustrates it. He said, this is an illustration of just what I've said. Now today we come to verses 4, 5, and 6, and this is the application. What's the point? Here's the truth, verse 1. Here's the illustration, verse 2 and 3. And here's the application. Verse number 4. Wherefore, he says, wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Let's look at that and look at it carefully. First off, the first word tells you in a text when you're studying the Scriptures, when you find the word wherefore or therefore, it's always a transitional word. So what he's doing with the word wherefore, he's marking transition from a declaration and an illustration. Now it's time to understand what you do about it. This is application time. Notice he comes to this and he's starting to hammer out this truth with these people. In verse number 4, he says, My brethren... That's sort of a tender term because in verse 1 he started out, he just called them brethren. But here he adds that pronoun to it, my brethren. He softens it just a bit. He softens the tone of it. And so in so doing, he personalizes it and he tenderizes it, as it were. Then he hits this truth as it related to them. You see what he says in verse number 4? Ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Ye also are become. Something has happened to these people. And he's saying the declaration of truth I gave you in verse 1. The illustration of the truth in verse 2 and 3. I'm telling you, you also have experienced this truth and this reality. And this reality is this. And he goes over it again, as it were. I just illustrated the death of a woman's husband. Frees her from the law that bound her to her husband. Just so... You believers are become dead to the law of Moses because now you are free to go marry another. These people were married to the law. I mean, they absolutely were in love with the law of Moses. I mean, it was hard and tough and rough. But they believed it was their ticket to heaven. They believed if if they obeyed every jot and tittle of the law, someday the door would open Peter would step out and say, Welcome home. That's what they believed. And Paul's saying that's not true. That's not true at all. It is not in the keeping of the law, and Paul says, in order for you to see this, you have to understand this principle: when you come to the relationship with Jesus Christ, you died to the law. You died to it. Now the law didn't die. Law is good, and by the way, next week, verse seven, what shall we say? then is the law sin? Oh, absolutely not. No, it's not it at all. It's not that we have a bad law. It's not that God's law is bad. It's that we are bad. We're bad. That we make, we who are bad, make a good law look bad. See? It's not that your kids are bad, right? You just have bad rules. Isn't that right? That's what they want you to believe. See? Just bad rules. I'm good. No, no, it's we're bad. Our kids are bad. They want to do what they want to do. They don't want to listen to mom and dad. They want to do their thing. And so it makes our rules look bad. But no, 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 no. It's reversed. The rules are right. Mom and dad, if they do it under the auspices of what God's word says, they lay down rules and regulations in the home to keep it in order and keep the family safe and keep their children on the right road to being the kind of young people they ought to be. But what does society say? Oh, you've got bad rules, boy, bad rules. No, that's not right. It's because we're bad. And that's what we'll get into next week in verse 7. But for this moment of time, what Paul is saying here, and it's important. Note the word become. You ought to underline it in verse number 4. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become. The Greek word is thanatu. Thanatu doesn't mean a whole lot to much of us. But there's one thing about the word that stood out immediately when I saw it. When I read that, looked at it in my Greek New Testament, I noticed something unique about it. In this word, the tense of this word indicates a thoroughness, a completeness, a finality of the death that he's talking about. Ye are become dead. Thanatun, the tense of the word means absolutely finally dead. There is no such thing as this being done again later. This is not a do-over-tomorrow deal. When they became dead to the law, they were dead forever to the law. That's what the Greek word says. And it's the tense of the word that indicates that. By the way, it's in a, it's in a passive voice. A passive voice doesn't mean, again, a lot to you, except if you learn your English, you know that something passive means it's not you that did it, it's something done to you. In this context, that's exactly what it's saying. The believers do not die this death to the law. When Christ died on the cross, he, as it were, took their lives, as it were, and they then have no relationship to the law anymore. Their laws have been taken, their life has been taken from them in that context. It was done to them. They don't do it to themselves. That's why we don't say you die to self or you die to the law. The ideal is that's a done deal and it was done by someone outside of ourselves. And that's what the Greek word in word to become thanatu means. Note something else, verse 4. And this thing has, I think, a, when I read the Scriptures, I look for verses like this one. This verse has a, a, a whole outline within itself. Look at this. The first question would come to me, then, how we are freed from the law? How are we done that way? How do you get freed from this law? He says it and says it straightforward. Ye also are become dead to the law. How? By the body of Christ. Well, what does he mean by the body of Christ? Anytime in the Scriptures you use the body of Christ... You're talking about his crucifixion, his suffering, and his death. Always. Check them all and read over the verses. Every time you have the reference to the body of Christ, you're talking about, and I'm talking about his physical body. When you see the body of Christ, you're talking about a physical happening to him. And in this case, he's talking about the suffering, the death on the cross that he experienced. That's what caused these people to be dead to the law. Something else to be noted here. If you look a little further over from Romans, we're in Romans 7. Look over to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. I happen to believe Paul wrote Hebrews also. And in chapter 10, the first seven verses of Hebrews 10 says this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of the things... "...can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect." That is, the people who brought the sacrifices. "...for then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sin." Verse 3, chapter 10 of Hebrews, "...but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance against again made of sins every year." For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. That's works of the law. The law required those sacrifices, but those things could not take away man's sin. Wherefore, when he cometh in the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Verse number 6 says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure... Verse 7, then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written, to do thy will, O God. This passage of Scripture is saying simply and straightforwardly that this body that the Lord Jesus Christ was given was given for a purpose, it was given for sacrifice. It was given with God's full intent that his son would be stretched out on a cross and he would die there as a sacrifice, a permanent, eternal sacrifice for all of mankind's sins. And he was saying the law and what it required was a thing, it was a temporary matter. They kill the animals, and then next, next month or year, they kill more animals, and next month, next year, more animals. And it was only when God gave his son and prepared this body for him that when this body was placed on that cross and he died there, sacrifices were all done. That sacrifice, sacrifice for all forever and it was for nobody else to come along and say well later you gotta, you got to pay installments on this oh no oh no this was a done deal and this body that he speaks about in verse number four is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in that setting then something else the question comes in why why are we freed from the law and stated here in verse number four he says in verse number four ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ that. That's your key word, that ye should be married to another. The whole idea that you couldn't be married to two at the same time. For instance, you can't be sitting in the auditorium of the New Life Baptist Church today and say, I am a Christian, and here's the basis of my salvation. I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Oh, but by the way, I do know that I've got to keep the Ten Commandments. I've got to be at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I've got to read the Bible through at least one time each year, and I do have to witness to at least five people over the next seven days. And I also know that I have to pray daily, have to thank God for all my food. If I keep up all these things, I get to go to heaven when I die. not the way it works. That's not what this is about. Paul says, no, you don't add anything to it. It's a very simple thing. When you died with Christ on the cross, you were dead to the law. Now, what it is, it's your relationship to him and that relationship alone. That's why, by the way, when the thief died on the cross, why he could be in paradise with our Lord immediately. Did he get baptized? No. Did he join the church? No. Did he give any money in the offering? No. Did he witness to anybody? Not a soul. What did that guy do that deserved getting into heaven? Not a single thing. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of ourselves, but even the faith is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It is all of grace. And God knew what he was doing when he did it that way. He knows us. We have this way about us. Brian hit it well in Sunday school this morning, talking about this business of doing your alms before men. You know, God sees in secret. God rewards those who do their service for Him secretly. That's primarily the idea. It's not a matter of that what you do public. I mean, sure, you could be doing a good thing in a public setting, but if you're doing it with the right motive, God sees it and honors it. God's not big on this business of popping your suspenders in pride. Pride is something that God hates and has and will always do. But the fact of the matter is, in this context of this passage of Scripture, He is simply saying, in order for you to understand your relationship to the Father, you have to understand the relationship with the law has to cease. You've got to quit depending upon the law to be your salvation. It is not your salvation. Your salvation is in a person, the person who wrote the law, in God Himself. Note something else. Not only why we're to be freed from the law in verse 4, but notice something. Who then are we joined to? It puts it all in this one verse. He says that ye also should be or are become dead to the law by the death of Christ or the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. And here's who to. Who is this person we're married to? Even to him who is raised from the dead. And that context... I must tell you limits the field how many people do you know that got raised from the dead and by the way let me put it to you this way this phrase puts it in a Greek grammar just slightly different where it says raised from the dead never to go back to the dead now, Jesus Christ didn't get raised from the dead on on, uh, on a Sunday to die next Friday see the point made is he was raised from the dead never to go back to be among the dead he never did he was raised eternally. What's important about this is if who you have joined yourself to for freedom from the law and for free salvation does not meet that criteria, then I must tell you, you married the wrong person, spiritually speaking. And there are people in this country who've married spiritually the wrong people. They've married themselves to denominations that teach you got to keep keeping the law I have a, a Mormon neighbor. Many of you know that. He's a, he's a nice man. He and his wife both are very nice and kind people. But the fact of the matter is, he's depending totally on what he's doing in order to get him to heaven. And I don't uh, want to be unkind, but I'm sorry, you're not going to make it on that basis. Is he a good man? Yes, he's a good man. Does he earn a good living for him? Absolutely. Is he kind and gracious to me? Sure, He is, but that won't get him there. And I don't care if it's my family, your family, my neighbor, your neighbor. If they do not do it God's way, they are not going to get into God's heaven. And until we wake up to that and understand that and embrace that, our problem is very simple. We don't want to be the guy that says, uh, you know, no, you can't go because you didn't do it God's way. I want you to know I'm not the guy calling the shots here. I'm telling you what God said about how you get to his heaven. And you and I have to be the same thing. You have neighbors that uh, that don't believe that. They need to see it God's way. They need to understand what God is saying. This is not a Baptist interpretation. This is a Bible interpretation. There is a way that seemeth right unto the man, unto man, the Bible says. But the end thereof are the ways of death. And I might add, and many go in thereat. So the Bible is... Dead set against the idea of working your way to heaven, whether by keeping a code of laws, rules, or behavior of good behavior, trying to do something that'll be good for people. You may be the nicest, kindest neighbor anybody has ever met, and I hope you are. But if you're depending on that to get you to heaven, I'm sorry, my friend, but your bag has holes in it. It'll not get you there. Notice the next thing. Also notice this further why. There's another why. We are freed from the law and we're married to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice why we are. It even tells you this verse. Why when you came to know Christ and you're married to Him, what was supposed to happen? Verse number 4. Ye also are become dead to the law by the body or the death of Christ that ye should be married to another... And you can do that because you've died to the law. Even to him who raised him from the dead. There's only one who that would fit. That's the Lord Jesus. And here's the reason. That we should bring forth fruit unto God. You see, you can't read long or far into Paul the Apostle's writings without bumping into this subject of fruit bearing. Every time you read the epistles, you're going to run into it. This business of fruit-bearing falls usually into two categories in Paul's writings. One of them is that which is what we call attitudes. In Galatians chapter 5, in verse number 22, Paul wrote this. He said, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Verse 23, Meekness, temperance against such there is no law. That's the basics of attitude. attitude. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit attitude? The fruit of the Spirit attitude. When you came to know Christ as Savior, when you got cut loose from the law, God expected you in being married to Christ, there'd be fruit brought forth, and the first line of fruit He wanted from you was a change of attitude. A change of attitude. Love, joy, peace, suffering, etc., etc. Those are the attitudes that we reflect. And I say to you, that's the first thing we ought to see in people. If you know Christ as Savior, the fruit of the Spirit ought to be obvious. It ought to come glowingly through. People around you ought to see and know and understand that. I get sick. I get tired. I get weary of people talking about how much they love the Lord and how much they want to be a blessing to people only to go home and treat their families like dirt. I have real trouble with that. I have real trouble with that. And I'm saying to you that the Christian life is not served in a vacuum. You are what you are when you think nobody's looking. You are what you are when you are alone. You are what you are when you think there's absolutely no good that can come of what I'm about to do, and therefore I can do whatever I will. That's what you really are. And that's what you ought to understand, because what that'll do to you and to me and everybody else, it'll keep you very humble. It'll knock the socks out of your arrogance. And it'll take you away from this business of making sure that when you're at church on Sunday, you really act right. See, how many times have our young people here, mom and dad on the way into church? Now, you better act right here. Excuse me. They ought to act right everywhere. They ought to act right everywhere. My dad made sure I acted right in some places. Now, you, I probably got away with a little more at home than I got away with anywhere else. But I've told you before, you know why my, mo- my nose looks so funny? because it's been hymnaled to death. I mean, my dad saw sat one arm length away and bam, and just kept listening. Bam. And I caught on after a while. That's why I got this nose this way. It could have been a lot worse. Oh, yeah, this could have been worse. Well, you say, was that right? Oh, absolutely not. My dad didn't read any books on it, see. You've read books on it. You know the truth. Yeah, Dad never believed in psychologists and psychiatrists and the whole ten yards. He just believed in doing what he believed He ought to do. And he believed that it was inherent. When you had children, you somehow knew how to rear them. Now I don't argue a lot of the points, but maybe or maybe not he had an ideal. Here's my point here and now, and that's this. You see, when people get this idea that you just act Christian around other Christians, something is missing as the foundation for the whole relationship. It gets back to a law keeping. You know, everybody believes in law. Everybody does. Everybody does. Nobody does not you go in anywhere, and, and let's just tell you. Let me tell you this: You go in for lunch when we leave here, and you go to lunch, and there's a line of people standing in line to get their food. Cut line. Just walk right in there and just say excuse me, and walk right up out two from the front. Excuse me. Don't even we're worry about two from the front. Walk to the front. Walk right up in front of all of them and just stand there. Now you think they're going to let you stand there? You think they won't kill you? Depends on how hungry they are. It's how fast they kill you. But the fact is, you know why they're going to do that? Because they're going to say, that's not fair. Based on what? Who says it's not fair? It's inherent in them. You know what's fair, what's not fair. They know what's right, what's not right. There'll be some saying, that's awful. Did you just come from church? And you say, yeah. My pastor just said, we're dead to the law. We don't pay attention to any law. You see my point? Everybody knows there's a law. There's just something inside of us that says that's not right. That's not fair. You can't do that. Who says I can't do that? A law says I can't do that. A, it's an inborn thing. So my point about that is, what, how How's all that change? Well, it changed when I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't worry about the law part of it anymore. I concern myself with pleasing Him. He is a perfect, holy, sinless God. And that law can't hold a candle to him, no matter as holy as it is, as good as it is, and it is, and we'll learn that next week, it is him as a person that I want to please. And that gives a whole tone of things differently. So my attitude of this thing, this first thing about attitude need be. But Paul also mentioned in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 13. He referred to this. Let me show you again. He says this in the beginning of this book as we started. Chapter 1 and verse number 13 of Romans. Paul said, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. He's simply saying that there is a kind of fruit that's connected to action. Some's connected to attitudes. But there is a fruit, and Paul speaks of it in Romans 1. He speaks about it in Colossians chapter 1. And it is a fruit that is produced. It is a fruit out of action. Something you do that produces something. And so consequently what he's talking about here in Romans chapter 7 in verse number 4 is when you come to a right relationship with Jesus Christ... It was not that you just start bragging about that relationship and sitting back and do absolutely nothing. He's saying to you, now it's time to produce fruit. Just as surely, in fact, Paul's point in bringing it in here is that fruit bearing here is to say just as a person produced fruit while they were in their sin and in their bondage to which they are now ashamed. Remember back over in chapter 6, um, verse number, uh, verse 21, back in chapter 6 of Romans in verse 21 where he said, "'What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed?' You see, he's talking about your life before you came to faith in Christ. He said, you had fruit even back there. The bad thing is, now you're ashamed of it. Things you did back there, you know you did wrong, and you knew they were not right, but you did them. Because your heart was not right with me. Your heart was not right with God. You didn't have a relationship with Christ. You were still married to a law, and you thought you could get away with it. Now you're ashamed of it. So Paul continuously say that's one reason, he brings it up now, that you ought to have fruit that is brought forth because of your relationship to Christ. But it's also just as a Christian husband and wife produce children as offspring, their fruit. And the ideal is that they dedicate those children to the Lord Jesus Christ early and train them and nurture them in the things of the Lord with one reason, that they bring honor and glory to God all the days of their life. You see, and that's what Paul's coming at here in this context. He's saying, So every believer joined, married to Christ should bring forth fruit to God's glory. So the issue is have you been joined to Christ? Have you trusted Christ as Savior? Or are you still trying to keep a whole list of laws, the Ten Commandments included, and you think that's going to get you into heaven? Paul says you need a divorce from that. You need to die to that. And you need to be, as it were, married to Christ. You need a relationship of love, not a relationship of, of labor and work and, and, and keeping laws. You don't need that anymore. You need a relationship of love. It'll change your whole dimension. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Paul takes a sort of a backward look, if you call it that, over the landscape of his lost life. When he was not a Christian, and he uses that phrase, first off, when we were in the flesh. By the way, you should note in verse number 5, that pronoun there, He should note that Paul includes himself in this survey of his sinfulness. When we, we were in the flesh. By the way, the flesh is the governing force... In a, lot, a lost person's life That is the thing that prompts and moves and stirs them To the lost person the flesh was also the basis of their standing before God Because remember it's in their flesh That they uh, would depend on what they were And what they could do That might be acceptable to God It's in their flesh And God doesn't accept any flesh If it's an operation of the flesh God doesn't accept it In fact in a Bible sense We should understand that in the flesh Is another opposite being in Christ if you're in the flesh you're not in Christ and that is if you operate in that mode as a pattern of your life that's what he says notice the second thing he says the motions of sins which were by the law you should first understand motions in that context the Greek word can be translated passions or desires or lust the lust the passions the desires of the sins that's called what we call it impulses to do wrong And you need to understand the law did not make sinners sin. It is only in that naming those sins it should be forbidden and abstained from. The flesh, as it were, got a strong impulse to commit them. I can illustrate that best by this. Over the years, we've been confronted many, many times about teaching sex sex education in in the public government schools. All along, I have been opposed to that. And I've told people why I'm opposed to it. And uh, they just, you know, they just... Oh, you're a preacher, expect that, and, you know, hard to get along with, and you don't want to cooperate, and you're intolerant, and all that. That's the usual thing they say about us. The truth of the matter, this verse of Scripture proves I was right all along. Now, here's what it says In essence, it is why myself and other pastors did not believe that sex education ought to be taught in the schools, and certainly should never be taught to the young age group they were teaching it. Here's the reason because the point made is the very thing they were trying to solve, they helped to create. In the hearts of lost people. I don't care how old you are. This verse of scripture, verse number 5, in essence is saying, The motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth unto death or fruit unto death and it's saying the very mentioning of some things will prompt that and we can prove that because when you come down to uh, uh, verse number 7 next week we'll get on to it Paul says what shall we say then is the law sin God forbid nay I had not known sin but by the law for I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet you see the point the very mentioning of a sin And in young people's lives, we'll do it every single time. I read of a pastor, and he told this as a story. He was in a school. It was a small school. And he said he remembered the day the principal walked in, and the principal comes to the classroom, and he said, I just want to make it perfectly clear that anybody who is caught with a firecracker will be expelled for the rest of the year. And he said, boy, that principal yelled that into that microphone to that class, and he was adamant about it. He was uh, dismissed for lunch, and it was back at a time when the boys could walk three blocks home for lunch and come back. On the way home, they said, you know, do you have any firecrackers? And the old boy says, no, but Johnny does over here. He said, let's go by Johnny's house. I mean, 45 minutes after hearing the principal of the school go nuts about firecrackers, and these guys go to Johnny's house and get firecrackers. They take them back to school after lunch, period. They walk into what we normally call a cloakroom, room where you put all the coats and lunch bags and all that kind of stuff. They go in there, and this preacher said, he said, here's how we're going to do this. There were three of them. They closed the cloakroom door. They took the firecracker. One boy held it this way. The second boy gripped the fuse right at the base, and the other boy lit it. The idea was it'll burn down to where he's holding his finger, and it'll go out. Wrong. No, that works. So they lit that firecracker, but just as they're getting ready to lit, they opened the cloakroom door. And so the kids could look into the cloakroom and see the boy's holding a firecracker, and this guy's got his finger like this. The teacher's desk is over here. Couldn't see it, and the kids were looking, and they going, went... and they lit the fuse. What they didn't realize is when they lit the fuse and it burnt down to the boy's thumb and finger, it burnt his thumb and finger, and he let it go. And this boy's standing there with a live firecracker and realized it and threw it on the floor right behind the teacher's desk. And the firecracker went off. Did the teacher come out of her seat? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not only that, but the boys ran to the back of the cloakroom and just sort of put their heads against the wall. Uh, Firing squad's what they were ready for. By the time the boys turned around and looked... The principal was standing in the hallway of the cloakroom. The principal had his hands on his hips just like this. I mean, he was ticked. In Greek, that means he's really angry. <laughs> he called the boys out, sent them down to his office, called their parents to come and pick them up, and this young man, this preacher, was expelled for the rest of the year. Just what the man said. Now, what made that boy do that? I mean, he he knew full well if you do this, here's what you're going to get. Something inside of him, a rebellious spirit. He says, immediately when he said you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, you ought not do this. He admits something inside of him said, I'm, I'm going to say about that. I'm going to say about that. So my point is, teaching anything in any classroom concerning moral matters is a dangerous issue. To people whose hearts have not submitted to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what you're doing is lighting a fuse. And they'll throw it down and get burnt by it. So you just mentioned something. Well, you ought not do this. Well, I'm going to go try it. Because it's in our hearts to do it. Adults do things of the similarity, you know, only they do it in snyder ways. You know, you go downtown and they paint the park benches down there. And they'll put wet paint, do not sit, do not touch. I'll guarantee you, every adult walks by, yep, it's wet. It's just something in us. we got to find out for ourselves. Touch it and look at it and, you know, it's just there. And I honestly think it's a rebellious heart. I don't agree with him on much of what he writes, but I have his confessions. Augustine, when Augustine, the Catholic fellow, wrote his confessions and... A lot of things, in it, like I said, I don't necessarily agree with, but he wrote something very interesting. And he wrote in there that the business of, of him and some boys finding a beautiful pear tree in his neighborhood when he was growing up, and the pears on the tree were especially good-tasting. And so it was that his parents told him, Don't bother Mr. So-and-so's pears. They are are a prize to him, and do not touch the pears. At night, one evening he gathered three of his friends and he and those friends went to that pear tree. They climbed over the fence and one of the boys getting up in the little branches to the highest point where the limbs would be more flexible began to shake the tree. The other four boys, or four, three boys were on the ground and they began to pick up all the pears off the ground. When they had finished, they had taken every pear off of that tree and stolen them. What was interesting, they sat down first and picked the best of what they had picked, and they ate them. Then they took the rest of what they had gathered to a pig farm two miles away, it said, and poured them over the fence for the hogs to eat the rest of them. Then they all brushed themselves off, and they all went home and went to sleep. When confronted, and finally all the confessions were made, and it was found out, Augustine was a part of the group who stole the pears he was asked and he said it by that time he had matured and understood some things and he asked him why did you do it were you hungry for pears he said no did you think they were beautiful not especially why did you take the pears and he said because my heart said I could not And he said, in my heart, my heart knows I'm a thief at heart. I'm a thief at heart. That's what we don't want to face up to. But the truth of the matter is, anytime we have placed a restriction on us, there's a tendency inside of us to challenge that, and all it proves is the rebellion of our heart. And that's what Paul is getting at to in this context. Notice something before we close. He said, did that work? Look at verse number 5. He says, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth, in this case, fruit unto death. That means these motions of sins, these passions of sin. They found their expression, their outlet in our body, our body parts, our body members. And as we, as an individual, yielded to these temptations, we produced a poisonous fruit. And Paul here calls it a fruit unto death. I say this to you, the word work in that context is a Greek word that we get our word energy from. It, it literally was to mean to operate with power. And what it's saying in this context is, is this, this is a work of, or an energy of the flesh. And we have to watch out for that, obviously. When Paul wrote there in the book of Galatians, he talks about the, the, uh, um, he called it the work, works of the flesh, or the energies of the flesh. And he listed those things, those things that have to have the flesh to cooperate with them in order to accomplish them. And he listed them in Galatians chapter 5. You can read them for your sake of your time. But let me go to the last verse and we close with this. Romans 7, 6, he says, But now, and boy, I tell you, I've come to love those two words in Paul's epistle. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Here he is, he's contrasting his old life and his new life in his relationship to Christ. And note again, he includes that pronoun we, but now we are delivered. Anybody and everybody is included in that if they place their faith in and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. If you've done that, then you're free from the law. You are now married or connected or joined to the Lord Jesus Christ yours is not a law relationship yours is a love relationship to do that which would be pleasing to him and Paul sets that forth in this context something else as far back and as far back as we go to chapter number 7 verse 1 where he says as long as a man liveth he is under the dominion of the law that's what verse 1 says Well, this passage, this whole passage is teaching us that we died when Christ died on the cross. We've been released from our moral and spiritual liabilities, even from the penalty of the sin that hung over our head. And please understand this before we close and leave here this morning. Freedom from the law does not mean free to do whatever else you please. That's not what it is. That's not what it teaches. Rather, it says and means for the first time in your life, if you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... You're free to do what you should do. First time you've ever been able to do that. There's been a time in your life when before you came to know Jesus Christ as Savior, you couldn't do right if you wanted to do right. Oh, you might give a token of effort here and a token of effort there, but the Scriptures teach very clearly it's not in you to do right because there was something in you that was stronger and that will to do evil. As Paul will talk about later in Romans, was ever present. And that's what he's saying in this context. So look, if you would, at this passage of Scripture in verse number 6, but now we are delivered from the law. That is, we are set free from the bondage of believing that obeying the law will bring us into a right relationship with God, that being dead wherein we were held, but we're no longer held there. And here's the reason. He gives it to you very clearly that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That's a a good way to put it, Paul. We should serve. By the way, that implies not an option. But we should serve in newness of spirit. We don't do what we do because we got to do it or God's going to club you to death. That's not the reason. We do what we do because we love Him. And we love Him and therefore we give ourselves for Him and to Him to use us in any way, shape, form, or fashion He is pleased with. By the way... It is said back over in John chapter 15, and you know the passage well, where John writes, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it bring forth more fruit. The implied statement is, a fruitless Christian is not a Christian. If a Christian does not produce some fruit of a spiritual, eternal quality, he's not God's people. And that's what you need to look at people's lives. You don't need to listen to what they say. You need to see what they produce. Look at people's kids. Look at that. Listen to their language. What's their behavior? Are they people who have an attitude of gratitude? Are they always complaining, grumbling, murmuring? You see, when you come to understand... You are what you are by the grace of God. There's an attitude of gratitude that just sort of saturates your soul. When you know you're not going to heaven because of what you've done, in the sense that your works and your effort to be accepted by God, you're going to heaven because of what somebody else did for you. And when you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and He saved you, He gave you an absolute, absolute assured ticket to heaven, an absolute abundant life while you're waiting to go changes your whole attitude. What you once were, you are no longer. But the fact of the matter is, we ought to be able, and people ought to be able to look at our lives and say, you know, these people know Christ. They've been married to Christ. They're they're not out keeping a a set of laws and rules in order to get there. They've come in relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's why they're going. That's what Paul is saying in this text. Back over in chapter 6 quickly in verse number 4. He said, therefore, we are buried with him in baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That has to do with your daily life. Romans 6, 4. Here in chapter 7, verse 6, he says that we should, as it were, serve in newness of spirit. So you not only walk, in the newness of life and show people that you know Christ by the way you live but also you show it and reflect it in the newness of your spirit you do what you do because you love Christ and that gives the whole thing a whole new flavor and makes life a lot easier in the sense of your joy and excitement of serving Christ I don't come to church anymore because my father makes me (laughs) he's with the Lord he has no control over what I do now All those things he used to say, you are not to do this, I could go do them if I wanted to. I just don't want to. Because my father introduced me, as it were, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, someday you'll be out from under my house and out from under my rules, and you can do whatever you want to do. You'll be a free man. But he reminded me. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And he said, God has laws. And if you violate those laws, you'll be the one paying the price. But he doesn't want you to always just keep laws. He wants you to have, as it were, a relationship with him. And that relationship with him is this relationship of knowing Christ as my personal Savior. Christ died for me. And I believe on him as my Savior. And once you believed on Christ as Savior, then all this other business about law-keeping... It's a matter of my own conviction, my heart of love. I want to do what's right, I will do what's right. And that what gives the impetus for people to stay at the stuff when it going gets tough. Otherwise laws might be a hard reason to do some of the things we're asked to do. I hope God will use this in your life and your heart. If you're here now and you do not know Christ, you're uncertain of your relationship to it, I encourage you as we sing the invitation song to come and allow us to show you from the Bible how you can be saved and know it right here, right now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the holy scriptures. Thank you for the privilege we have to handle them and read them and study them, memorize them, and, and share them with others. And thank you for the moments we've had together this morning in the Sunday school hour and the worship service. And now we're more accountable. We cannot plead ignorance as a saying things that we've heard in Sunday school and the things we've heard in the worship service. We're no longer an excuse for us to say, I don't know and I don't understand. So this morning, I pray, Father, that you might work in every heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this building. I pray you'd cause us to face up to the reality of the question, whether or not right now, right here in this place, has there ever been a time where I have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work? Have I done that? Have I believed on Christ? Or am I still struggling to try to keep the laws, the Ten Commandments, and do things that would win God's favor? Or am I resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? And now in this resting position, I can serve Christ with love and admiration and loyalty and commitment like I have never had before. I pray today, Father, that you'll speak to hearts and work in lives. And those who need to know Christ, may you draw them by your Spirit. And allow someone here in our fellowship to show them from the scriptures how they can be certain and sure Christ is their Savior, heaven is their home, and life lived here until we go can be abundant. I pray for those who ought to come for baptism. They've already trusted Christ and they know that, but they need to follow you in believers' baptism. Or those who ought to come for church membership. Or those who ought to come for prayer. Whatever the need is, help us to make the decisions that you've ordained for this hour. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please, and turn, if you need a hymn book, to 282, just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning about your standing before Him, your relationship to Him, let me encourage you to come as we sing the first stanza. We'll have someone here who will be glad and honored to show you from the Scriptures what your need is and how to address it from a biblical standpoint. But we first need you to make that move toward that end. If God has spoken... You obey Him, please. 282, verse 1. Let's sing together, please. Singing, just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you very much. We thank you for your patience this morning. And yes, I did preach longer than usual. And the reason is very simple. After I'd said what I did about you cutting line, I don't want you to do that. And I thought the best way to do it is just keep you here until everybody else is done so you'll be able to walk right in and get fed. So anyway, thank you for staying with us. I hope you will come back, be with us in the evening service tonight. Steve Kissling will be here. He and his wife, missionaries to the military. Hope you can come and join us in the service tonight. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the grace that's ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are also grateful that we do not have a salvation that we have to pay installments on by keeping up to a certain rules and regulations or laws. We're glad that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He did everything that it demanded. And when we've embraced Him and trusted Him as our Savior, we're complete. We do not have to continually worry about whether we're going to make it or not. Because it's not about what we're doing, it's about what He has done and our faith in His finished work. So help every believer, true believer in this room, to rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for any who are still struggling and trying by that, I pray help them to face it and deal with it even before they leave today. Bless as we return for the evening service. Bless Brother and Mrs. Kissling. Use them in our fellowship. Pray you help us to be informed of their work so we can both give and pray and stand with them in this great ministry. Thank you again for your love and mercy to us and for the privilege and the measure of health we enjoy in being here this morning. Bless now and give safety as we go. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.